This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Luke Geddes, author of the novel Heart of Junk. The idea that there have been artists and filmmakers, musicians, novelists, writers who were able to create and release a body of work, and then they had to live the rest of their life maybe not being a creative or not being publicly creative. There's definitely a lot of tragedy there. We'll be back with Luke Geddes in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Luke Geddes, author of the novel The Heart of Junk and the short story collection I Am a Magical Teenage Princess. His work has appeared in Electric Literature, Mid-American Review, and Hayden's Fairy Review, among others. He also makes collage art. His novel Heart of Junk centers on the dealers who run booths in a failing antique mall in Wichita, Kansas. The variety of wares each dealer sells include old postcards, glass, vinyl records, Barbie dolls, and neon signs. Each dealer has a personality that to some extent matches his or her products. The owner of the mall has one last hope for saving the failing operation, 
a reality antique TV show that has intentions to feature the heart of America on its show. The arrival of the show's hosts, however, is in jeopardy as a young pageant beauty queen is kidnapped. The reality show is considering pulling out of the episode because the hosts don't want to appear callous as Wichita is undergoing this tragedy. We began the discussion with Luke Geddes sharing how the idea for the novel came to him. Well, I feel like it, it started with the general sort of environment of secondhand collectibles, antiques, markets, uh, vintage resale. I feel like I'm not really someone who is naturally drawn or, or skilled with plots. So I just sort of started with not even the setting of Wichita, but just like the general setting of an antique mall. Um, and that just sort of came naturally from my own interests. Uh, I've been fascinated and, you know, a happy consumer of secondhand stuff since I was a teenager. It really started when I got into punk music and punk culture when I was about 13 or 14. And so I would go to the, the area thrift stores in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin, where I grew up searching for whatever kind of clothes or whatnot that I considered punk by whatever definition I was working off of at that time. There wasn't really a lot to do in my college town or where I grew up. So it was like the thing to do was just go to all the thrift stores. But then just to fast forward a little bit, uh, when I was getting my MFA in Wichita, Kansas, where the book is set, uh, I sort of made the transition from being interested in uh, thrift stores to antique malls. And the reason for that is really just that the thrift stores in Wichita couldn't measure up to those back in Wisconsin. So Wichita has some of the best antique malls in the country. And, you know, it's it, it, it seems to be such a defined part of my identity by now that I can't, I don't know if I can really explain like why I'm drawn to this stuff. You know, a lot like the characters, they each have their own thing or category of uh, vintage stuff or antiques that they're obsessed with. And if you go to these kinds of places, if you go to flea markets, if you go to a lot of antique malls, they're divided up uh, into different booths run by different sellers. So different people rent the booths or, or run tables at a flea market. And you can tell without even talking to the proprietors of the booth, like you can get a sense of their personality and what they're like just by the stuff that they sell and the, the way it's arranged and how messy it is or how perfectly organized it is. Um, and I think that's sort of, that was the germ of the novel, which is there's this whole ecosystem within one single antique mall. And it really is like a community in and of itself. You know, much like the characters who I think are are more comfortable with like objects, inanimate objects than human relationships. I think for me, the characters started with what they owned, what, what they sold, their objects. I built them from like the booth and from the, the stock that they sold, what kind of character would sell, you know, vintage records versus what kind of character would sell, the kind of thing that I would find boring, like old glassware and stuff like that. So the book Heart of Junk is structured around this one antique mall in Wichita and all the characters 
in the novel have a booth in this Heart of America mall. And they each, like you said, they have their shtick. Like each one of them has something they're very passionate about, whether it's Dolores and Barbie dolls and Margaret and Glass and Seymour and Lee with old records and punk paraphernalia. Each one is centered in this mall and has this community of people that they're working with. And then it's also their own pursuit. So I'm curious how you began creating this cast of characters because of course it's not just that like Margaret collects antiques she sort of has a closed heart and is very judgmental but obviously has more going on and Lee and Seymour um, have been together for a long time and they are kind of in the midst of questioning at least Seymour is for sure like why are they together is their love eroding and Ronald collects old postcards and his wife has died and he thinks everyone loves him and Keith the owner of the place is always questioning himself and he's in debt and his daughter doesn't love him so they they have a lot going on how did you start with the cast of characters and and create these people I mean that's somewhat mysterious even to me it's I can tell you it's it's a really slow process for me. I, I've talked I talked a little bit before about how the characters came out of like the booths that I imagined, but I think the characters and those booths themselves came out of actual antique mall booths and tables at flea markets that I saw and experienced in, in real life. So I can tell you absolutely that there's a particular booth in uh, an antique mall in Wichita that to me is like Seymour and Lee's booth. And it's a booth that's completely overstuffed with exactly the kind of junk that their own booth and Heart of heart of Junk or the Heart of America antique mall is overstuffed with. And I could say the same about uh, Margaret that I've seen her booth in, in real life at various antique malls. So I was really just sort of building off of what I thought of almost as stereotypes, the stereotypical booths that I would see at not just one particular antique mall, but all around. So you get a sense of here are the types of characters who inhabit this place. And I think the challenge after that was like, well, how do I get more idiosyncratic or more interesting than those stereotypes? That was where the slow process of just sort of entering these characters' points of view, because it's a fairly internal book, uh, and just figuring out what else is going on in their life that they have to spend so much time obsessing and compiling and curating all of these objects in the way that they do. So the disarray of Seymour and Lee's booth, for instance, I think speaks to their sense of being overwhelmed with all the choices they've made that have gotten them to the point they are in their lives, both in terms of the relationship and in their geographical location. And then, of course, Margaret is extremely orderly in her booth. Um, she's, she's very uh, persnickety about upkeep of her booth and having everything in just its exact right place. And that speaks to her desire for a certain uh, amount of control over her life and a certain amount of putting up a facade about who she really is. She's very surface oriented. 
from that sort of high, her judgmental side, both in terms of judgment toward other people and judgment toward herself. The, the character of Ronald, he collects postcards and no one really cares about his postcards. His uh, passion is something that the world couldn't care less about, at least the world within uh, the heart of America antique mall. And that really came from, again, there's not a lot to do in Wichita. So one thing uh, my friend Ian and I did once in Wichita was we went to a postcard collector's convention that just happened to be in the area just to see what was up. And uh, we were the youngest people there by maybe like 40 years, it felt. And it seemed like everyone we talked to, these postcard collecting maniacs, these Deltio maniacs, as the book says, they really wanted to initiate us into the world of collecting postcards because they knew to be morbid uh, that when they died, their hobby was probably going to die because there aren't a lot of young people into collecting postcards. So that's sort of where I didn't realize it at the time because they didn't start writing the novel till much later, but that's definitely where the character of Ronald came from. It sounds like for many of your characters, they might be amalgams of types of people you've seen at antique malls. I'm wondering if once you started writing this, if you kept going to antique malls to keep observing or you tried to stay away because now you were creating this world? Uh, I definitely kept going. Something about the the world of antiquing, when I was in my graduate program here in uh, Cincinnati, getting my PhD, like, you know, as you often face uh, when you're in a graduate program, you have these moments of existential crisis where you think, what am I doing here? Do I belong in academia? Is it worth it to even pursue writing? And during that time, like in my mind, my fantasy was always like, oh, well, I'm going to drop out of this program or drop out of life and become one of these characters who hangs out at the heart of America or become like a world famous antiques picker or something like that. And during one of those low moments, I did end up taking a minimum wage job at a local antique mall here. Part of me was thinking for research, part of me was thinking like, this is my way to climb up into this uh, glamorous world of antique mall proprietorship. And I can tell you that that experience went poorly. I lasted about a week. I couldn't take the feeling of being surrounded by the types of people that I wrote my novel about. So I decided to uh, to go back to writing and to finish the novel instead of uh, making a career change to, uh, to an antique mall clerk. That was a very short experience, but a lot of uh, Ellie's cynicism and a lot of Ellie's negative attitude definitely arose from that experience. Right. And Ellie is the daughter of Keith, the proprietor, who just doesn't want to be there. And she's forced to work there and and watch what's going on and is very judgmental. I'm curious what it was about the people you were surrounded by that you didn't want to be surrounded by. I don't want to be too mean because I, I am one of those people, right? I am absolutely one of those people. You know, I can drag my wife or I can drag my friend around the antique mall and show them like, oh, look at this object. This thing is so cool. Here, here's all this interesting trivia I have about it. But when you're on the other side of the counter, when you're acting as the clerk, when you're the worker there, it ends up being much more like any kind of uh, soul-sucking 
capitalist uh, tradition of, you know, just moving product. So I think what happened was it, it took sort of this special kind of like, you know, as the, the novel says, an antique mall is like a, a, a gift shop and a museum at once. All these like things from history that you can buy and take home yourself. And there, there's no antique mall that has the exact same stock and no booth that has the exact same stock. But by the time it gets to the counter where you're just like putting in uh, prices and you're like trying to negotiate with some uh, emphatic shopper about, you know, lowering the price or giving them a discount, it really just becomes like not, not any different from working at a Walmart or something like that. So I'm, that's not to say like I'm above that kind of work, that that work is low skilled because I actually think it's like highly skilled and highly difficult work. And that's why I couldn't do it uh, because I'm too weak and too frail as a writer. Well, it's interesting, too, because kind of what you're talking about is that I felt like with some of these characters, even though this might not have carried over to their personal lives in their homes, they bordered on hoarders. So they could be hoarders, but not have it in their homes and just sell it in their booths, or they can be hoarders at home as well. But it's sort of like there's something uh, like a little bit of about a sickness sometimes when you're pursuing that. And at the end of the day, you're talking about things that people don't really need. You know, you don't need an, a 1990s MC Hammer doll. Yeah, exactly. I think I think it's a way of rationalizing a pathology. And I think it can be uh, certainly a, a healthy way to take some of these like hoarder adjacent impulses and do something a little bit more productive or, or, or safer with them. But I do think, yeah, at heart, I think what, what's talked about in the novel a lot is this evolution of when you first sort of get that spark and you become interested in whatever category of antiques or collecting that interests you. And that's like an exciting time. It's really like, it's sort of that falling in love period with that thing. But then as you become more of an expert within that category you, and you accrue more and more and more, started as this thing, I found this unique, really cool, beautiful object I would never have known to go out and look for. And this is just almost pure chance that brought me to it. And I'm excited about it to like, I have so much of this thing that I can't even keep track of it. I can't even contain all of it in my own collection. So now I have to go out and sell like my extras. So what happened to that original passion there? That's sort of the feeling you get um, at a lot of these like specialized flea markets. Well, one of the things that this book struck me as was sort of a quote, middle age book. And I don't know if that's because many of the characters were middle age. I don't even know how old you are, but you also had a line in there and I think it was Keith where it says no one prepared him for how lonely middle age could be. And it really struck me that even though it was in Keith's chapter, that it was so true to almost every single character in there. And obviously these are also people that feel more comfortable with objects than other humans. But I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that line. Yeah, that's interesting. 
I think you're absolutely right. It does feel very much like a middle-aged book. I wasn't middle-aged when I started writing it. I'm, I'm 33 now, and I started writing it the earliest parts of it in 2011 or 2012. Um, but I did, I think I did start writing it in a transitional period of my life where I was realizing like, okay, I can't sort of use this excuse that, you know, I'm just a, a young man anymore. I really have to figure out what it is my priorities are. And I also think just being surrounded by these old objects, these objects that once had lives, they've lived their lives and now they're just sitting there leads to that kind of introspection of you know what is this all for well I think also that was probably reflected in the faces that you saw when you started this journey of going to these antique malls like you don't see 20 somethings manning and womaning the booths yeah that's very true so yeah and there's a, I'm not really a great in terms of bargaining or making conversation with people at these uh, flea markets and things like that. So I was more of an observer, but there was always this sense, you know, I, as someone who looked younger than a lot of the people shopping at, in those spaces, uh, I felt like, oh, I'm getting sized up a little bit here of like, well, what do you know about this thing? Are you qualified to appreciate this thing from my childhood. The, the, the other, one of the other things that struck me was also another line. It was about Lee. So Lee and Seymour are in, um, they're gay. They're in a, they've been coupled for a long time. Lee is much older and he used to be a punk rock musician in a band that maybe could have made it, but didn't someone else in the band did not him. And, he there's a line that basically says that the best days of his life were far behind him and you get the sense of how he is begrudging his age and sad about the fact that maybe there's nothing great or monumental ahead of him but I thought that was really interesting because all of these people in the book are all about collecting old things so it was interesting this dichotomy between the value of things that have been around and how that value doesn't translate to the human realm. Yeah, and not, not to spoil too much in the book, but one thing that happens is, you know, his cast off, forgotten work suddenly takes on a new life. And I think that that character really comes from, and that movement in the novel comes from just my own experience as a fan of these obscure or forgotten um, bands or artists or novelists. To me, I always feel like a book is so has to be so much better if it's out of print or if something is out of print. It's just so much more interesting to me. If something is hard to find, it has to be better. So the idea that there have been artists and filmmakers, musicians, novelists, writers who were able to create and release a body of work and then they had to live the rest of their life maybe not being a creative or not being publicly creative there's definitely a lot of tragedy there but there's also something um interesting and, and almost inspiring about that you can create artwork and also be a person and live the rest of your life you don't have to be just one thing there's kind of this idea for some of them of the the white whale of what they 
want to get, whether it's a certain postcard or for Dolores, it was this rare Skipper doll who was Barbie's. She's a Barbie collector and Skipper was Barbie's sister, I believe. And this idea of the white whale keeps a lot of these people going. Same with Seymour and trying to find certain records. That is definitely something that most collectors, most people with this temperament have. Uh, And much like that guy I mentioned before, rebuilding his childhood comic book collection, as soon as you get that, you just move on to a new one. So the goal is to, for completists, is to complete the collection, but they never actually want to do that because once they complete a collection, they don't have anything left to search for. So they sort of create new goals. It's the moving goalpost phenomenon that I think a lot of uh, ambitious, creative people are certainly familiar with, but also collectors. You know, the other question that we also talked about a little bit and that you mentioned right now was, as you said, there's this idea of collecting to completion and, and the idea that that completion will make you happy. And it's really rarely does. Yeah, I think it almost never does. I think one of the questions of the the book is like, well, how does a collection end? How does a collection reach its end point? And it seems like the answer is that it never does. Or if it does, that's like not a moment of triumph. That's like a moment of abject despair. Well, it seems like the triumph could be actually, if you let it all go, that Maybe you will have regret, maybe you won't, but if you just take everything and give it away or pass it on to the next antiquer, there's actually a lot of freedom in that if you can get to that place. It's a hard place to get to. Can you read a passage by an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I have two short paragraphs. They're from different short stories by the same author. The author is Jack Pendarvis, and the the story collection it's from is Movie Stars. It came out in 2016, I think. So first I'll read the first, or the last paragraph of his story, Cancel My Reservation. He saw instead a montage of himself at liquor parties at which he had arrived with an empty stomach. He saw himself interrupting everybody and talking too loud and bragging about a famous punk rocker he knew. This was his life, the one that flashed. He saw himself with his greedy fist around a black plastic fork, cramming an entire serving of macaroni and cheese into his mouth at once. Decent people watched and could not believe their eyes. So that's a character dying, and that's his life flashing before his eyes. And then the other short paragraph, is the end of the story, Ghost College. He should have taken better care of his wife. Was that proprietary and old-fashioned? Was it sexist? He wished he had been a better husband. It was like prodding at a wound, thinking of a world in which people could be dismissive toward her, try to put her in her place. She had a place, all right. It was a great place, miles up in the air. Everybody else could suck it. Uh, and the reason I, I chose those is I, I just think, um, you know, the, the first paragraph I read, you know, the life flashing before your eyes, that's a very stock thing. Um, but I think Pindarvis really homes in on these 
very precise, idiosyncratic, specific images that show that excruciating thing of those moments where you see yourself as outside of yourself and you're just absolutely disgusted with who you are as a person. I think that image of uh, shoving a whole thing of macaroni and cheese in your mouth is basically humanity in a nutshell. And then the, the second paragraph I read from Ghost College, again, we have this moment where a character is reckoning with um, maybe the way he's mistreated someone in his life that he loves. Um, and that last line, everybody else could suck it. To me, uh, I'm fascinated by the use of imprecise, vulgar language to draw out, I think, a very precise and um, almost heartwarming emotion. So I think uh, Pindarvis is a master of humor, certainly, but I think where he doesn't get enough credit is the way he can really draw unexpected emotion out of unexpected language. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, so what I'm reading is actually what we might call like a deleted scene from the novel. So the novel has a ton of different point of view characters in its current form. And in earlier drafts, it had even more uh, point of view characters. So a lot of it got cut. Some of it got combined into like two different characters got combined into one character. And this short scene I'm gonna read is from a chapter that was from the point of view of Lindy Bobo's brother. So Lindy Bobo was the kidnapped girl and in the novel, as it is, like Billy Bobo is like a nothing character. He's barely in the book. So it might be surprising to know that there was once an entire chapter devoted to this very tertiary character. Um, so I'm going to start reading it now. Billy wondered what Lindy was feeling right now. She was famous. Her face was on TV, on flyers, stapled to telephone poles, in the newspaper. Wherever she was right now, she had to be feeling happy about that. She was even more famous than when she won Snow Globe Princess at the Midwestern Holiday Trade Show, and her photo was printed on the backs of the boxes of a certain brand of candy canes. She had to be feeling happy. That is, if she wasn't dead. This, Billy knew, was why people spoke in low voices around him and mother and grandmother. This is why they were th what they were thinking, but didn't want to say. Billy spent a lot of time thinking about death. In his mind, he could not contain the idea that time went on forever, that it would outlast his existence, that he could go to sleep and never wake up. He pictured death as a screensaver on mother's desktop computer, an endless, thoughtless plunge through, through the star-speckled blackness of outer space. Do you want to talk more about that? In the our earlier drafts of the novel, there were multiple chapters from the kidnapped girl's point of view. There was this chapter from the point of view of uh, her brother. Um, there were chapters from the point of view of characters that aren't even a part of the novel anymore, so they don't even exist within the novel. But I think that the, the DNA or the crucial elements of each of those aspects of the novel somehow 
worked their way back into the book. There were specific lines where I really refused to follow the adage of killing your darlings. I thought this character is gone. The character who has this line is gone, but I'm going to figure out where to put this line back in because I just wanted to have it in there. So for anyone who, who thinks like this is a lot of point of view characters, it could have been even more. But the Billy chapter was probably the, the least crucial to keep. It was like the one that was most obviously ready to be cut. But I still miss it in a lot of ways, just because I, I kind of relate to this character of a little kid who, who is just very curious about death. Where do you write? Uh, I have a, a sort of a home office I'm in right now, surrounded by my various uh, collectibles, things I've picked up at antique malls and, you know, surrounded by books and stuff. I have a, a crappy little desk I sit at and work at. I put my laptop on the floor when I'm writing a first draft. I always write by hand in a notebook. Um, I don't do a ton of writing outside of the home. I try not to leave the house in general if I don't have to. Um, occasionally, I'll, I'll go to like a library and work there. But for the most part, uh, I, I just work from home. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I've tried to do other creative stuff, creative stuff that's not related to writing. Like I do collage art using old magazines and things like that. But what I found is, you know, I, I originally would start doing that stuff to be to have something that's low stakes, a low stakes creative pursuit that isn't related to my career. But I would still end up having the exact same kind of anxieties about that creative pursuit. So just the way when I write a chapter or a story, I would feel like, oh, this one was crappy. It wasn't as good as the one I used to be able to write. You know, I've lost that spark. I'll never write something good again. I would have that, those exact same feelings about, you know, making a collage. So I still do that, but I don't do that as an escape from writing. So honestly, to be lowbrow, I find the best way to sort of turn off my mind, to get my mind out of this narrative loop is to play like a very simple and basic video game of like the Nintendo or Super Nintendo level of complexity moving from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. Because even, you know, doing something like watching TV, that's all narrative. So if you're in the sort of writing mindset, it's hard not to analyze like all the different plot and character moves as you're watching it. So the, the thing that's furthest from writing for me is, you know, just to, to continue this pattern of regressing to childhood is like, you know, moving Mario from that one side of the screen to the other side of the screen. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have friends who are writers, but I don't usually get a lot of feedback from, from them. Honestly, when I'm with my friends, I'd rather talk about things other than, than writing. I might give it to them to, to just say, I want you to read this and then tell me it's good. Um, but for the most part, uh, I, I, I just rely on my agent. Right now, my agent is Ronald Gerber. Um, and he replaced my agent who left being an agent to be a super successful writer, Mary South. Uh, so I think that's what I like about having an agent is it's someone who you can sort of force 
to tell you what to do. So I like to follow instructions um, and I like to be an obedient uh, student. So I, I usually trust my agent with stuff like that. How have you dealt with rejection? It's sort of a cliche, but I think there's a lot of truth to it that it only takes one yes to achieve the thing you're trying to achieve, whether it's publication or something else. And it takes an infinite number of no's to never achieve that thing. Um, so my main approach is really to the extent that I can is to keep going. Um, I think this novel, I think I, I, the hardest part of getting this novel published was getting an agent. I recently tried to count and track how many agents rejected the novel, but I think it was like too many to even keep track of. I think it exploded, all the rejections exploded in my Gmail inbox, but I think it was rejected by around uh, 150 agents before the agent I, I had finally took it. And I think I'm the type of writer uh, that I'm, it's always like at the last minute that I get the yes. It's like, I don't, if there's 150 no's out there and one yes, I'm not gonna draw the yes out of the hat. I'm gonna draw every single no before um, I get that yes. So I'm sort of used to, you know, nothing comes quickly or easily. I have to, it's not a real yes if I haven't gotten a million no's before. Um, and even uh, the publisher and the editor who ended up accepting Heart of Junk, uh, they sort of rejected it first. They kind of rejected it and then changed their mind a day later. So, you know, I never get that pure acceptance. So I'm just going to uh, expect a lot of no's for the rest of my life until I get those yeses. And what is your favorite word? Uh, I gave this some thought and I, I came up with three that are, I think my, but my favor toward them is purely intuitive, uh, facile, candid, and kiosk. Well, thank you so much and good luck with this out in the world. I'm really excited for you and I hope it goes wonderfully. Oh, thank you, Mitzi. And, and thanks for taking the time and, and for reading the book. I'm still uh, a little bit shocked that people are actually reading it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Luke Geddes, author of Heart of Junk. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Elizabeth McCracken, where she talked about seances and her short story collection, Thunderstruck and Other Stories. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Some clips from this month's interview that patrons will receive as extras include Luke Geddes talking about his own experience as a collector, nostalgia, and plot versus character. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jill Cement, Julia Phillips, Tishani Doshi, Jenny Ophel, Kevin Wilson, Chuck Polinick, Anne Enright, and Sahar Mustafa. 
You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. And you can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.